Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Mark and Thomas Chung. They're both founders at Vertigris. Guys, welcome to the show. <laughs> Great to be here, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited to have you guys on the show. I think what you guys are doing is really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get to know Vertigris, let's get to know each one of you a little bit better. So, Mark, why don't you give us a quick overview of yourself uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, and then let's let's dive in uh, to your career a little bit up until Vertigris, and then Thomas, I'll, I'll do the same for you. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I am I'm Mark. Uh, um, I grew up in Austin, Texas. I think this oh, part cool. will be pretty similar to Thomas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Considering um, your brothers, <laughs> you know, my yeah, our dad. <laughs> Our dad was an engineer, um, so you know he was always fixing things around the house, fixing cars, fixing stuff. Uh, we had like the first computer in in like I don't know the the town that we grew up. Very um, cool. Uh, so kind of just seeing a lot of uh, engineering and stuff growing up, um, and and also because we were like the only Chinese kids in a pretty rural area of Texas, um, we also were kind of both very much into math and science and I spent a lot of time uh, doing that all the way up until um, um, school where uh, I went to Stanford and studied um, engineering uh, and then I went into electrical engineering uh, did grad school at Stanford um, got my first job at AMD designing chips oh, interesting. Um, and then went at a, went to a startup company uh, called PA semi which was later acquired by Apple again designing um, microprocessors now almost all the phones that you you know that that iphones and the ipads are all based on architecture that i helped work on wow, um, very cool and then right before this company um i worked at a company that went through a couple of different um iterations but it was a a startup company that did uh network packet inspection processing um eventually that company netlogic was brought bought by broadcom um in 2011 um and uh you know, I got to see that go all the way from, uh, you know, 13 engineers to uh, 800 person company before it was acquired. Um, then, then started this company. So that's, that's what I've been up to. Very cool. Thomas, do you want to give us a bit of background on yourself as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, uh, you know, also grew up in Texas, Mark. Um, the, you know, really where, where, um, you know, in Austin, which was fairly progressive. So, um, you know, as, as Margaret said, you know, we, we grew up uh, as some of the only Asian kids, but, but really in a pretty welcoming environment, a lot of Texas hospitality there. So uh, I was very, very sort of happy with that growing up. And, uh, you know, later on decided ultimately that I, I really enjoyed it, stayed in, stayed in Texas and went to school there uh, in undergrad. Uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, um, where I ultimately ended up studying computer sciences. 
Um, so I, I guess you know, my, um, you know, our, our family always kind of joked that you know, Mark, Mark would, would sort of take electrical engineering and I would, I would do software. Um, <laughs> Why is that? Just so, out of curiosity. Uh, I uh, think it was potentially some, some nudging uh, for us to, to go off and, and one day build a, a company that could deliver an integrated um, product. Uh, very cool. Um, <laughs> That's I, awesome. I, yeah. Okay, keep going. Sorry. That was maybe the grand design of our parents, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm sure there's a master plan in a file cabinet somewhere. Um, but yeah, <laughs> awesome. ultimately, you know, after school, Mark said, you know, computer sciences. That you, you really should just come to Silicon Valley. There's some really amazing things out here. I I ended up. Um, you know, after school, uh, joining this, uh, it's like a Kleiner Sequoia backed venture company. Uh, it was founded by the, the former, um, or the, the founder of electronic arts. It was called digital chocolate at the uh, time. Right. Um, so re really wanted to sort of understand what the, the whole Silicon Valley, uh, ethos was about. Um, and it was just a tremendous, uh, learning and growth experience. Uh, and then, you know, from there, ultimately moved on to, to build a, a small iPhone, um, iPhone development publisher, uh, that we, we later sold to, um, a private equity shop in, in Los Angeles before, uh, before I ultimately made the, the move to Vertigris. Very cool. So how did you guys come up with the idea for Vertigris and what exactly is it? I mean, a lot of it had to do with you know, him at the time kind of going from all of these you know, chip makers and, and startup companies. Uh, and I'm, I feel like it was kind of around the time that uh, he had, they had sold uh, him and our other co-founder, John, had, had, had sold their, their company, NetLogic, to Broadcom. Kind of a soul-searching moment where, you know, my, my nephew, Emrys, was, was just born. And, um, you know, Mark, I think particularly around that time, there was a lot of, uh, fascinating, but the terrifying climate science uh, research coming out, and uh, you know, when when thinking about what we were sort of doing with our time, and you know how how he could make make the world a better place for his his children, um, you know that that was really kind of how how he thought about the direction he wanted to to take his career at the time, and um, you know, when when you're in that sort of situation, I think. Uh, it, it started out a little bit as, uh, you know, the, the sort of Silicon Valley story, right? We we met up in his garage Saturday morning. Uh, you know, those those are some of our 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 fondest uh, pictures, where it's uh, not not a not a Palo Alto garage, but more like a, a Sunnyvale garage. But um, you know, sitting there, kind of having goofing off in the morning. What what's the difference for people that don't know? Oh, um, they're they're adjacent, or, or two small cities in the peninsula, adjacent from each other. But uh, one is sort of known for being kind of a birthplace of of HP and and some other fairly well known uh, Silicon Valley startups like Apple. Sure. Uh, well, startups at the time, uh, and you know we we were we were not not too far away uh, in in, in yeah. Sunnyvale. I would say the biggest difference in my view, Kevin, is that uh, like Sunnyvale is the Palo Alto of like 
50 years ago, maybe. Got you. Got <laughs> Palo Alto you. now is just full of, uh, you know, if you have, if you already have a garage in Palo Alto, you probably have, you know, a successful company. Um, I see. Um, in Sunnyvale, homes are much more affordable. And so that's when we started. Got you. No, very, very cool. So I'm curious though, Mark, how did you originally come up with the idea and, and then decide to actually go for it and, and recruit your brother? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I think Thomas may have already mentioned the part about the motivation to try and do something beneficial for humanity because yeah. of, you know, my son was born. It sort of changed things for me. Um, the idea actually came about because there was an experiments that we had been running um, at work okay. uh, with different kinds of packet inspection technology. Interesting. Um, and one of the really interesting papers that I came across was the work of a, a gentleman named Zico Coulter, who actually turned out to have the same graduate advisor as I did at Stanford. Oh, wow. And um, in his work, he talked about these new techniques, um, which were very similar to kind of like, um, you know, at the time, we, it was like at the beginning of machine learning and AI craze. So um, new techniques to do um, algorithmic pre-detection of signals. Um, so there was, there was that, um, and then there was this really high energy bill that I had on my house, and I couldn't figure out where that energy bill was going. And sort of the combination of that generated this idea, like, why don't I just take a, a very high-frequency sample of the electrical data coming off the house and try and run this generic algorithm to see if we can separate all of the information so I can figure out what's causing all of that electricity electricity to go away and um, that's when we kind of made this really startling discovery that um, all of the different equipment in my house was generating very unique signatures that could all be teased apart and picked apart by an algorithm interesting um, I think that that was a really interesting discovery um, <laughs> and then you know after we found out the problem in my house I sort of shelved it until Later on, I realized, you know, all the technology we have could solve much more meaningful problems. So that's, that's, and then um, later, uh, you know, after Broadcom bought the company, I, um, I think, and, and my son was born, there was like this kind of, con uh, a bunch of factors that contributed to like, okay, it's time to take the plunge and build a company. And, and Thomas and I had te toyed around with the idea of, um, you know, starting a company many times, but we were so in completely different industries. Um, but I knew that I was going to need someone with, uh, you know, his computer science background, his product skills, like his early stage company skills. Um, and uh, it took some convincing. <laughs> cause, <laughs> uh, yeah, because he's like, I, you know, Mark, this this company that I just uh, sold, I'm running their entire digital division now and um, got a lot of projects underway. Like, um, uh, but I, you know, I think eventually I said, what would, what would be, what would make mom and dad happy? <laughs> what would make happy? <laughs> uh, guilted yeah. him into it. I like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I guilted him into it. Yeah. No, that's, no, that's, that's very cool. All joking aside. Like, so I'm curious then, how did you guys fund the company at first and how has it 
evolved and changed into what it is today? Because you guys have been around for about a decade. Is that correct? Yeah, close to a decade. Since yeah, um, so early days, it was it was actually seed funding from Thomas and myself and okay. our co-founder John. So uh, the fortunate thing was like both John and I had a reasonable sized exit. Uh, Broadcom bought bought the car company for um, close to four billion dollars. Wow. Um, and you know while we were like early early engineers there, it, it, there was enough trickle down effect of that size of an acquisition that we had some money to put into the endeavor. Nice. Um, and then Thomas, uh, I think he was one of the co-founders of his last company. So, you know, um, we got a big check from uncle Tom. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, the, the original that's how we got kicked off. Are in the room. Yeah. yeah we, we kicked it off. We put our own money behind it. I think it was easier that way in the beginning. Sure. Um, and then, um, you know, quickly, I think we realized we needed some external validation or, uh, you know, smart money to behind it, too. So we raised some additional uh, funding and then um, la landed at Stanford Stardex, which was like an accelerator program at the time. Very cool. Um, and through that program, we raised some additional capital. Got you. So walk us through the 10 years how is it the same and different from what it was 10 years ago and obviously it doing a hardware software uh company is really challenging so do you want to maybe talk about some highs and lows of that journey and what you guys have learned along the way yeah i mean the you know the the, the time period was long and so it's, it's kind of weird to think about um how I've spent a decade now, a quarter of my life, and you know, ha half of my working life on on Vertigris. Um, a good portion of that was was really just kind of deep R and D. Um, so, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were doing at the time, uh, very cutting edge in terms of what uh, what yeah. we were trying to deliver into the market. Uh, how the early parts, I think, particularly in the first five years, a lot of it was was R&D and market discovery. Um, yeah. You know, initially, you know, a lot of the proof points that we had of what we could do was, was sort of in a residential setting because that's where the lab was. Um, so, you know, old, you know, asking around and finding that these were really problems of much more significant magnitude in commercial facilities, uh, you know, those were learnings that we took and then uh, figuring out how to convince someone to, to let us uh, you know, essentially test on these large commercial facilities like at the Moscone Center or things like that. Um, <laughs> the, it, it took us a little bit of time to, to learn uh, what we had to learn to, to have the credibility to, to, to essentially go in and, um, and, and run those projects. Um, so, so those were a lot of the early days. It was a lot of, uh, you know, really just talking to a lot of people, trying to get the technology stable, working. Um, and, and so ultimately, you know, it wasn't until I think 2017 when we had sort of the, the broad, broadly commercially available uh, versions of our product that, that we could deploy sort of globally anywhere um, and began to, to scale the, the sales and marketing effort. Got you. So um, Sorry to interrupt, but I'm curious, how did you land some of those 
early adopters that you go in and try uh, your technology in there. Because the Moscone Center is one of the biggest conference centers on in San Francisco. Am I, is that correct? That's not that's correct, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it, it's. Uh, I think you know, it's it's funny because as as an early team, you know, we we're sort of proud of our our academic credentials and our work experience, but. Um, you know, what, what I think really drives people to make a decision like, hey, I'm going to let this startup, uh, you know, touch some of the electrical uh, infrastructure in yeah. my building. Uh, they, they really got to have a problem that they think you can help them with. Um, ah, and okay. and it, it was just like a really hungry industry for a solution to a problem. Well, you're potentially saving them a ton of money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they, they didn't they didn't really have the visibility at the time to you know, sort of understand what where where all that money was being spent or where that, that energy was going. Got you. So walk us through how does a company or a hotel or um, a building actually implement the technology? Because you guys have some huge, well-known companies and clients using your hardware and software. Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 a fairly straightforward process today. I mean, at, at the time it was a little bit bumpier, but um, you know, today there, there are some fairly standard packages that we would provide to our customers. So uh, I'll talk about the experience of one of them. Sure. Uh, just another one in San Francisco, since since I'm I'm thinking of it, and they're they're nearby, uh, which is like the Grand Hyatt over in Union Square. Sure. Um, and. Uh, it was it was fairly straightforward. We would deploy the elect the metering, uh, the vertigris metering at their uh, primary mechanical, so their their HVAC uh, and and sort of the electrical feeds going into the building. Um, and the key reasons we're doing that were to to capture uh, one sort of all all of the the entire building footprint because we're we're looking for you know, essentially everything you're getting built on. Um, okay. And then two was, was sort of the, the HVAC or the things that um, were really controllable. Um, and once we've done that, then it was a matter of uh, just integrating with their building management system. So we have a point of actuation. Um, so those, those things combined, you know, we, we essentially had the visibility that, um, to the data. Uh, once all that data is getting pulled into our cloud, um, everything else is sort of um, hidden from the customer. Uh, on our end, we, we're building our forecast models. We're, we're building our control models, um, how we're going to optimize the building. And uh, a, month, a month later, we, we go to the customer. We say, you know what? Here's, here's how much you're going to save if you use Vertigris. Um, and here's a portal to all of your data so you can see it working in real time. Uh, you have that transparency, so you know that it's trustable. Um, you know that it's not going to mess things up for your occupants. Uh, and, you know, this is what you're going to save if you turn this on. Do you want to do it? Um, and then we flip the switch, and we go. And then, then they have a, an autonomous, autonomous building running after that. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. So how... When I log into my account and I start seeing this stuff, 
Is it real time? Is it delayed? Walk us through what I can kind of see and how real time it is or isn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, go on, Mark. No, sure. I, I can say uh, there's there's kind of like um, a few different workflows that okay. a building owner cares about. Um, so there is there is obviously a real time view, uh, which um, our systems are they're cloud connected. They're always generating data, and that data is always streaming continuously into the cloud. Gotcha. So you can log in, you can see things in real time. I mean, those things tend to be for like spot spot fixing problems. So if we okay. see an alarm, like uh, an, uh, I'll, I'll point to an early example, like um, a bunch of people in a, in a Netflix building were plugging in um, space heaters because it was cold and right. it would come up and it would, it would trigger an alarm that this was going to overcurrent the, the breakers and cause a shutdown of that floor. So in real time, the facilities manager could log in and see, oh, okay, someone just plugged in a space heater. And I know exactly when it was plugged in and those types of things. So there's kind of this real-time view that handles some of the things that they might um, have in their workflow. Very cool. Uh, but we noticed that, you know, it, it's not just so much for a lot of these guys. They, they're so busy all the time that they don't have time to just kind of sit in front of a dashboard and look at this stuff. So we developed a couple of ways to push this information out. You know, we give them a weekly report on an email. Right. That will tell them all the events that happened. Here are some of the insights that we've discovered. Here are the things that we see as problems. Um, and then we went like for like Thomas was illustrating for Hyatt. We kind of went one step further, which was um, because those reports get boring <laughs> after a period of time, <laughs> just seeing all these problems that I haven't been able to get to and I haven't solved. Um, you know, we automate the building for them, and then and the so the report that we give them is you know, here's how many events that we automated. Um, here's how much each of those events saved you. And here's what the system is doing for you. And so it's sort of like a, uh, a more hands-free approach to, um, to the solution today. Got you. Okay. Um, okay. No, that's cool. So how I, I get, it would depend on the size of the building or where you're actually implementing the system, but Roughly how long can it take and do you have to be a trained electrician to install it, I'm assuming, or, or walk us through that? Uh, yes. Uh, this goes back to your earlier question about hardware versus software. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think uh, one of the bigger challenges we have is that there is a system to install. <clears throat> right. I mean, I so early days, I think we were really thinking, hey, how do we how do we just get the data provide all this analytics, do some automation just as a software layer. And it's pretty, it's pretty tough to get the right kind of data. So we do have a system. Um, normally, um, a customer, when they, um, when they want to you know, place an order with us, as an example, they'll send us an electrical drawing of their ah, building. Okay. Um, and that electric drawing has a bunch of information on it, like where the sensors should be deployed and installed. Um, our team will scan through that, produce um, a custom configuration of sensors, kind of like, right. uh, you know, if you're going to like the, the Apple store and picking off the, the configuration of your MacBook, right. we have to do some lightweight configuration of the system. They order it. Um, our fulfillment center will deliver it within, say, 48 hours, depending if it's in the U.S. 
Um, we schedule an install window. Uh, typically, the uh, it's designed to be self-installable. So, a um, a facility that's sophisticated enough will have um, people on staff that can do the installation. Oh, if they cool. don't, then they can call in. Um, they can call in for an electrician, or they can contact us, and we can do a concierge installation. And we will provide an electrician to do the installation. Gotcha. Um, it doesn't re- necessarily require one, but um, it's always good to have someone who's like kind of skilled with installing meters. Um, and then you know they go in. Uh, the difference between what we do that's um, uh, and and like what uh, maybe a legacy offering or a legacy meter might have is that ours is like uh, connected to the cloud from startup. So when you turn it on, you power it on, a Wi-Fi hotspot comes up, you pair it with your phone, um, you can map all the Wi-Fi, you can do all the configuration and setup. Um, if you, if you like some of our enterprise customers prefer to, prefer to do this like at, at scale, so you can just also just get us all the configuration information on a spreadsheet, install those systems, and then our team will load all that stuff into the data system. Uh, and then, uh, you know, within an hour or two, everything is um, on and configured, then it's running, and then we're just collecting information at that point. Got yeah. If you've, ever, if you've ever sort of had the experience of setting up like a, a Nest or a, a Google, Google yeah. Home or something like that, it's, a, it's essentially, uh, you know, really borrowing a lot of those modern design paradigms and um, and applying them to commercial space. Sure. So like pretty easy then to do. Yeah. It's meant to be self-installed. Sure. No, that's very cool. I think a lot of people at these days have installed the nest or Google home or other similar kind of smart home things that connects to the home. And it's actually, they're not complicated at all as somebody that's actually done it. And, and at first I thought it was kind of daunting. And then when I did it, <laughs> you're just like, Oh, this was actually really easy. <laughs> so, yeah very cool so i'm curious to know some maybe other examples or where do you guys take it from here because obviously with the pandemic most people have been working at home um so walk us through how you've helped buildings throughout the pandemic and and kind of after the pandemic and once maybe some people start returning actually to physical offices and other spaces yeah, you know, the, the pandemic was, was sort of interesting. Um, it had a, a really bimodal effect on our business. Um, one, one of sort of the key verticals for us was the hospitality industry. And so, sure. um, as you can imagine, that, that changed pretty dramatically at, uh, when, when COVID, um, you know, when lockdown started. Um, but, you know, we, you know, I wouldn't say it was foresight, but it, it turns out that COVID had sort of the opposite effect on a lot of other industries where, where Vertigris does have a, have a lot of customers. Um, and so particularly for uh, data centers um, or logistics, where you were seeing a lot more e-commerce activity, uh, you know, we were hearing from our contacts at uh, you know, Verizon, T-Mobile, these guys, that, that their traffic that they were seeing, you know, back in April of 2020 was essentially the same that you would get if you were, you know, Christmas time. Wow. And, uh, you know, that, that was just kind of the level of the video, audio, w- wireless traffic going, going back and forth. And, and it only grew from there. Um, you know, most people were, were kind of saying it, it took most online 
business five years into the future. So um, a significant growth opportunity for Vertigris um, at the same time. Um, and then, you know, going forward, I, I think as, as a lot of these uh, businesses are thinking like, well, how do we, how do we reopen? You know, how do we get back to work? What is, what does a new workplace look like? I, I think a lot of what, you know, a lot of what we've been hearing from our customers uh, is that they're, they're not expecting things to be the same by any means, but um, you know, are, are looking to create spaces that can match how dynamic the, the work environment should be to support unknown number of people or, or different types of meeting spaces, uh, different types of use cases. Um, and really it's, it's funny because it's sort of a facility operator's you know, worst nightmare to not know how the building is going to be used. Um, but it, it's something that I think you know, software can be extraordinarily good at, um, at in, in terms of being able to adapt uh, in, in real time to sort of emerging behaviors in, in a building. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So you kind of touched on it earlier, but I, I want to do a little bit of a deeper dive on it um, about predicting, like you mentioned with Netflix, like they know if you're going to blow the breaker or something because too many heaters are plugged in. But what other types of things can you help or notify somebody on staff that, that might happen or needs maintenance or, or something like that. Can you walk us through some examples of that? They, yeah, there's tons of examples of, uh, of them, but some of them are, are a little bit boring. Like um, um, we do have examples like in large factories where uh, um, they are getting hit by really heavy demand charges. Um, we had a, a, one of, one of our, earlier clients that was a large uh, consumer electronics manufacturer globally. Um, they had these massive energy bills that were coming from the movement of electronic goods through what's called a thermal cycling oven. So as they were cooking um, equipment through these thermal, thermal cycling ovens, they weren't staging them. They were just kind of going through super high heat ovens and then moving them through. And it, what they found or what we were able to find was that if they just staged them correctly, they never hit the peak that was costing them like 30, 40% of their energy bill. Um, so, and the throughput was the same. They just had a pipeline in. Uh, so that was, you know, a pretty interesting discovery. An another interesting early discovery that we had was that um, um, a, uh, a customer had been walking through um, and doing security sweeps. This is a, in a 24 seven facility. Okay. Um, and um, o overnight as they were like running their security sweeps, they would just, they had this weird uh, procedure where they would just turn on all the lights um, all throughout the entire facility. And then um, as they security sweep a section, they would shut down the light and then they would security sweep another section and shut down the lights and they would do this. And, the whole the whole sweep would take like twelve hours overnight, wow. and meanwhile, like eighty percent of the lights were on for that entire time when they were just needing to like identify a single location. Um, and so they made a simple correction, and you could see it like the really pronounced uh, inflection point of like their overnight energy usage dropped by like two thirds. Wow. So. Uh, yeah, and there's lots of it, uh, little interesting uh, things that, that happen all the time within these uh, facilities. 
Sure, I can I can imagine. I, I how does is there well is there anything that like do you guys if there's like a disaster or something can you guys send a push notification to somebody to say like look this thing just like you know needs to be replaced or needs maintenance or or can you do preventative maintenance how does that kind of stuff work uh (laughs) maybe thomas i'll let you take this one yeah i mean we're definitely working on on sort of classifying classifying severity I, i would say you know one of the steps we were trying to get to before you know, before you're going to send somebody an SMS in the middle of the night, you kind of have to have a really, you know, strong sense that, that that's something that's super urgent for, for them to go look at. Um, and, it, and it usually can't, it can't be something like, hey, I'm not, not seeing power on, on, on this circuit. Um, you know, generally, you, you only want to look at that sort of thing if it's a really big deal. And it turns out that particularly in a, you know, post-COVID world, um, and, and I would say the modern workplace, that, um, you know, what is a quote-unquote big deal is, is it actually depends on who you're asking. Um, you know, if you're asking the person at the facility who their job is to make sure these things don't break, kind of everything's kind of a big deal. Right. Um, but if you're if you're if you're talking about a, a business unit leader who runs, you know, 50 or 100 of these buildings, you know, it's it's got to be orders of magnitude larger before you send that person a text message. Sure. So part of, you know, what we did as the step before before that is, you know, we were trying to figure out, like, is there a better paradigm? for how people get alerted to these types of issues that doesn't require that they know all these intimate details about the building, particularly if they're running these businesses from, you know, thousands of miles away. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of one of the benefits of having a lot of this technology and software and having, having this AI is because you can sort of figure out what, you know, normal looks like for the building and then instead of saying, hey, if the energy goes up, you know, drops under, you know, some, some kilowatt, hey, you know what, just send me a notification if this is going to have more than like a $10,000 impact or $100,000 impact. Um, and, and then, you know, our, our AI engine will figure out, you know, how often is that happening about, like, that's going to look something like three or four alerts per month, you know, you get to make that decision on, on what that noise threshold is. Um, and what we found was that people really love this idea because what normally happens today is if, if you do try to set that kind of alarming, uh, it gets noisy really, really fast. Um, so, so figuring out how to get, you know, only the important stuff in front of you, that was the bigger thing for us. And the workflow today is, is currently uh, through, through email, uh, through through email for most people, although we'll we'll send up, we'll set up you know for SMS for for the people who are sort of the twenty four seven on call. Got you. Okay. No, that's that's very cool. So I'm curious to know how often do you guys have to release actual new hardware? 
um, and iterate on the hardware or can you do majority of your updates just through software? Uh, yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I, that's definitely evolved over time. I think um, early on the platform was pretty unstable and we had to do a lot of tight design cycles to iterate on the hardware to get it to um, to a kind of a stable point. Right. Um, I think I call that the kind of like the prototyping phase where we were, sure. you know, where we were in Moscone and we were sitting there with a laptop debugging issues. Um, and then we iterated, we had to build a new set of boards and quickly um, go through that. We went, we went through that cycle probably for six generations of the hardware. Got you. Um, and probably at, you know, three to six month design cycles. Um, but this last generation, between Gen 5 and Gen 6, um, we took a lot more time between them because, you know, Gen 5 was rel relatively stable, had some issues. Gen 6 has been pretty robust. And so I think um, all of the fixes that we've had to do, um, uh, you know, in the field or uh, in adding more capability has all been firmware. And we've taken an approach of being very... Um, I don't know, Tesla-like, if you want to say it there. We sort of future-proof the hardware. Gotcha. Um, so it has plenty of processing capability. It has really great um, firmware upgrade. We can remote update the firmware. It has all of the, uh, the, the, um, you know, the bandwidth and the speed that we need to continuously update improvements to it. Um, so now the kind of entire network of hardware out there can be upgraded just with the push of a, of a firmware upgrade button. Um, and we'll probably do another hardware revision maybe in a year. Um, okay. And mostly that will be to just um, deal with the uh, the kind of issues that crop up when you have like tens of thousands of systems in the field. Got you. Yeah. And I, I would add, sort of add to that maybe just cost, cost reduction. Um, and, you know, part of, part of what we've been trying to do in each generation of, of hardware you know, part of our cultural value and one of the reasons we founded Vertigris was really to have this impact. And, uh, you know, to that end, our goal is really to make this as accessible as possible. So, you know, all of the, the real expense behind this kind of metering equipment for, for equipment and labor that went into it for, for generations, like we're, we're really trying to eliminate all those costs. So um, in the future, when, when we do another hardware rev, I, I think, you know, our, our goal is to, to bring that to larger and larger audiences. Very cool. So you guys have been doing hardware and software for a long time now, iterated a few times, built a bunch of prototypes. Is there any advice that you would give to people that are doing a hardware and software startup that maybe you wish you knew when you were earlier on in, in the game or when you've been doing it for a number of years? <laughs> oh, there's too many left. Oh man! Are, uh, short <laughs> um, I, yeah, my my best advice for anyone trying to do uh, uh, a, a company, um, I mean, in some cases, like our market, you, you we couldn't just we couldn't get around the fact that we needed to build our own hardware. But if you can find okay. a way to do that and have your goods be virtual, um, you know, electrons are way easier to distribute and sell and move. Um, and manufacture than atoms, uh, which 
have logistical issues, manufacturing issues, capital issues. Um, there's so many things that we didn't realize, um, you know, go, go into the cost of manufacturing and distributing and installing your own equipment. Um, and you know, the time that it takes to, you have to, you actually have to put cash into these pieces of equipment before you can sell them. So there's all sorts of, uh, issues about how much capital you need to raise. Um, um, all, all I can say is that uh, if we had it to do all over again, I would prob- probably still do the hardware, um, but we would probably be a lot more thoughtful about some of these other issues um, that came about only after you move from the prototype phase to like trying to actually productionize and deploy hardware. Really hard. Yeah. And my mine would be you know, every every dollar or hour we put into a customer conversation, uh, it, you know, it, in hindsight, just paid itself back 100x. Um, and being, being engineers by training, uh, that was probably the steepest learning curve, at least for me, in, in terms of yeah. what, what it really takes to, um, you know, put yourself in front of a customer uh, really put yourself in their shoes for a day and and sort of even be able to ask questions in the right way to 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 really get to the root of you know what's what's bugging them um, and that information when it worked well, like I just know I can look back on some of the previous design decisions we made in hardware or software and what kind of assumptions we were making about the problems we were solving and uh, in a lot of cases we you know, we were great. Um, I'm, I'm glad our, I'm glad we're still around today. Um, man, in some cases, those, those were, were painful lessons. Sure. No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and any other links you want to mention? Yeah, our website is uh, vertigris.co. That's probably the best place to find information. Um, and uh, V-E-R-D-I-G-R-I-S dot C-O. There's no M at the end. Um, um, if you have, you know, like if they have, you have listeners who are interested in um, our solution and, the, uh, and deploying it in their facilities, that's the best place to find out about it, find out about, um, um, you know, the, uh, the, the benefits of it um, and how to get it. Um, and contact our sales. And if you're interested in maybe joining our team and uh, have listeners that want to help us with what we're trying to do, um, that's also a great place for a list of careers. And you know, obviously we're still rapidly growing and trying to hire um, strong people to join our team. So that's another, uh, I'll, I'll put the plug out for that as well. Very cool. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll go ahead and throw out my, my personal email. It's, it's just Thomas T H O M A S at vertigris.co. Um, so I'm heavily involved with our, our growth team. Uh, we'd love to hear from, from people just to know uh, how we can potentially help them uh, with, with their problems. Very cool. And, uh, you could probably already guess what my email is, <laughs> um, given Thomas spelled his out. But I'll just say that you can also just send all questions to me to Thomas. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. 
All right. Thanks, Thanks Kevin. Kevin. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future. <laughs>